0: Open your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter number 4. This is one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. Right up there with John chapter 3, John chapter 15, Romans chapter 8, 23rd Psalm. Philippians chapter 4 has some of the greatest verses in all the Bible. And tonight, we're focusing on the topic, contentment. Contentment. The idea of being satisfied. And so if I were to ask you this question... How content are you with your life and with where you are in life? How would you answer that question? Now, if you had to give that a number, like on a scale from 1 to 10, how content would you say that you are with your life? Now, I've thought about that today because I wouldn't want to ask you to answer a question that I haven't thought about myself. And so I said to myself, John, how satisfied are you Am I <laughs> with, with my life? And I, I'm gonna answer that question. I would say it this way As far as my own relationship with God is concerned, as far as my own peace of mind is concerned, as far as my own uh, peace in my soul is concerned, and as far as my actual life is concerned about like me, John, my life I would say I'm probably either a 10, or a nine. I mean, I'm pretty close to 10. I mean, I would say, honestly, that when I think about the life God has given me, the peace I have in my heart, and what that means to me in my life, I would say I'm either a 10 or I'm close to maybe a nine, maybe some days an eight and a half. But if I'm hitting on all cylinders, let me say it that way, I'm a 10 or I'm very close to a 10. Now, the problem I have, and maybe you can relate to this, is that sometimes I allow Circumstances in my life. In other words, things that happen in life to bring that number down just a little bit. Or sometimes I might allow a, a person or a people, or, you know, sometimes in life, and I don't think we mean to do this with each other, but sometimes in life we can put pressure on other people, you know, and sometimes I feel, you know, and I know you have, you feel this, sometimes you're just, you feel pulled here and you feel pulled here and you feel pulled here. And sometimes I just think, if we only could have 28 hours in a day, I could do all of this. But since we're in a 24-hour day, and since I'm supposed to spend part of that day reading my Bible and praying, I, I can't do everything. So sometimes I think the pressures of life I don't mean people asking us necessarily to do unreasonable things. I just mean we all have responsibilities in life. And sometimes we just feel pulled, and if we're not careful, that can knock our uh, satisfaction with life. It kind of frustrates us maybe or agitates us, and so we have to learn how to deal with that. Sometimes just things happen in life, and, and we just we allow these things coming at us from the outside to knock down our level of contentment, our level of satisfaction, and we're not maybe a 9 or a 10, like we would like to be. Now, tonight I'm preaching out of one of my Adrian Rogers study Bibles, and you know that I love Dr. Rogers. In fact, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have to invite him over to my mansion for dinner one night and just say, I preached a lot of your material, and I owe you something, and uh, Gabriel has prepared this up for us tonight. So I want to talk to you about this. And He used to say, by the way, if you ever heard Adrian preach, that J. Sidlow Baxter... Had a similar effect on him. He's a preacher of another generation. And Adrian said, I just uh, I'm afraid when I get to heaven, Jay Sidlow Baxter is gonna say, You preached all my material. So I feel that way toward Adrian. So anyway, I may have to have them both over. Maybe it originated with Baxter. But here's what Dr. Rogers says about contentment in, in, in the life of Paul. Paul came to a place in his life, not a physical place, but a spiritual place where he felt divine contentment. Most people think they know what contentment means, but in God's Word, it means self-contained. In this passage, Paul thanked people for their love gifts to him, but he also wanted them to know he was not dependent upon them because God had brought him to a place of sufficiency in himself alone. That is... Paul was able to say, I have learned that I don't need anything or anybody else except the Lord. I have Him. Therefore, I am self-contained. Not self-sufficient, but self-contained. In other words, the contentment is contained within our own hearts Because that's where Jesus is. If there's any area of discontent in your life, seek the Lord with all your heart. Ask him to fill you with his perfect contentment. So here's the difference. Well, the difference. Here's one of the major differences between me and the Apostle Paul. Paul would say, John, I'm like you. I'm a a 10. Some days maybe a 9. But I'm right up there when it comes to contentment. But here's the difference, Paul would say. He said, John, I've learned something you haven't learned yet. You're learning it. You're better than you were, but you haven't gotten this yet. I have learned that no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what the expectations are, no matter what the pressures may be, no matter what may be happening in my life, I've learned something you haven't learned. On those days when you get knocked down to a seven or a six, I'm still up here to ten. Because I have learned that the contentment in life that we're all looking for, is it's, it's, it's within me. It's contained in me. And Paul had learned how not to lose his contentment when things around him were happening that could have made him lose it. So in Philippians chapter 4, let's pick up in verse number 10. Paul, again, is in a Roman prison. You talk about dire circumstances, undesirable circumstances. He's in prison, and Paul says this, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need. Now, here it is in verse 11, for I have learned. Say those three words with me. I have learned. He said, I've learned this in whatever state I am, to be content. And so the main point that I want to make tonight is this. Contentment is something we learn. Paul was saved. You know, we always say Paul was saved on the Damascus Road. Paul wasn't saved on the Damascus Road. Paul was convicted on the Damascus Road. Paul got saved after he got to Damascus. But when he got saved, he didn't have full contentment at that point. This is something he learned later on in life. I have learned in life, in whatever state I am, to be content. I know how to be abased, that is, how to live in humble circumstances and maybe even with unmet needs, temporarily unmet. I know how to abound, that is, to live in prosperity where my cup is running over. I've had it both ways. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Either way, whatever the circumstances may be, I've learned that it doesn't affect my contentment. Now, how, Paul, can you say this? Well, look at verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, that's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. And most of the time, we quote those verses when we're facing a big battle or when we're facing a challenge. Or maybe if you're a minister, before you preach, you say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Maybe if you are a teacher, before you teach, or maybe you're doing something that makes you nervous. And uh, you're a surgeon, and before the big surgery, you you, you, you claim that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's a wonderful verse to claim. I remember when I was a kid, in the school I went to, public school, I was in the seventh grade when I started playing ball. And in our little weight room there in our school, up on the wall, was Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the coaches had placed it there so that when we were working out and exercising, that could be an inspiration to us. I can do all things. I can lift these weights. I can run on this machine. I can do all. And that's how we think of Philippians 4.13. I can do something that's hard through Christ who gives me strength, and that's true. But in this context, Paul uses that verse to say... When circumstances are dire and when things are difficult and when pressure is great, Paul said, I can, I can be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, most of us say, well, I'll be content or I'll be satisfied if this happens. Or I'll be satisfied one day, if you think it's going to happen, when this happens. God says to us, tonight Paul said to us, you don't have to say if or when, God says I want you to be satisfied right here and right now if nothing ever changes, your circumstances never improve. See, I think we have to get to a place in life where we say, God, there are certain things in my life that I wish were different. God, there are certain things in my life that I wish I had that I don't have. God, I wish, I, wish, I, I wish that, and not only do I wish it, I pray, God, could this ever change? Could this ever be different? Could this ever be better? But I think we have to get to a place where we can honestly say, God, if nothing ever changes in my life, I'm satisfied with you, and I'm okay right here and right now. See, when Paul was in this, in this prison, he didn't know whether he'd get out or not. He didn't know whether his circumstances would change or not. And yet he had learned to be satisfied and to be content right where he was. But again, it is something that we have to learn it. I have learned it. Not, not immediately did he learn it. It takes time for us to learn this. Now, I was thinking today, what are some things that prevent us from being content? What are some things when I said, on a scale from 1 to 10, how content, how satisfied are you? And some of you may have said 4 or 5 or 6 well that's an honest answer then. But what is it that prevents us from being content? I've already mentioned difficult circumstances. Certainly that's 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 obvious, but I'll tell you something else that can prevent us from being content. It's what I call the myth of the greener grass. The greener grass like a cow, we look across the fence, and growing up in East Texas, which in the 80s when we grew up there, was a dairy capital of the, of the world, of the nation maybe of the world, had 514 dairies there in East Texas. You think the, that a Pasadena has a smell when you drive by the, by the plants. Well, we came, dairies, everybody had a dairy. And yet you would go out on those farms, and you would see those cows, and so many times you would see a cow putting her head through the barbed wire fence, eating the grass from the other side. Why? Because even a cow thinks the grass on the other side of the fence is better than the grass over here where I am. Well, the cow's not right, and we're not right. But sometimes we think, man, their life just looks so much better. Now, I'm not big into social media. I would not know how to get, now, you, this may disappoint you. You may just think I'm, this just, just antiquates me. Not age, it's just preference. I wouldn't know how to get on Facebook if you held a gun to my head. I wouldn't know how to do it. Uh, but I think, but I've got enough, I'm on my computer a lot, I'm following people on Twitter a lot, I do that, and I read I was, all day long, I seem like I'm on my phone keeping up with news and what's happening. But I, I know this much, I believe this much about social media. Although there are many advantages to it, many strengths to it, and people I follow, I'm blessed by following them. But I think social media is a double-edged sword. And here's what I mean by that. Even though I don't know anything about Facebook, and those of you who do, which would be everybody else here but me, I do understand that. I think you would agree with me that on Facebook, most everybody is putting their best foot forward, right? I mean, they're showing you, this is just my impression as a person who's heard about it, but never really played with it, or got on that, whatever you do with it, I've never done it. But I think people are, are, they're putting their best foot, they're showing you themselves and their families at their best. And you look at that and you say, man, every time I look at their pictures or every time I read what they're posting and all this stuff, they just seem so happy. But they're not showing you their bad days. They're not showing you what they look like when they first get out of bed in the morning, right? I mean, I I don't think they are. They're showing you at their best. And so sometimes what, what people do, when they're always watching people and the people are always at their best, they think, man, my life's not like that. Here's what you need to know. Their life's not like that either. That's just part of their life. That's just that moment of their life. That's just that trip they were taking or that meal they were having or that good time they were experiencing. They're not showing you. They're, listen, they're showing you what they want you to see. But, you're, but in life... I mean, hey, we all have days, and we all have moods, and we all have times where we don't want anybody to see it. We don't even like it ourselves. And yet sometimes we see all this, and it's not just confined to Facebook. It could be television. It could be these celebrities. We see these celebrities, but we have to understand celebrities, by and large, are actors. They are putting on a show. I mean, that is their... They would tell you that. That's what they are. That's what they do. And so they're putting their best foot forward. And yet sometimes we see what seems to be a perfect life with no issues, no problems, no trouble in paradise. And we think, if I could just have his life, her life, their life, live there, work there, have that, be with them, be married to her, be married to him have that we think if i had that then my then my life would be happy and paul says to us tonight you don't need all that in fact paul says to us tonight the fact that you don't have all that means it's not god's will for you to have all that and paul says you need to learn what i've learned and maybe maybe i don't know for sure maybe paul would say it took me being locked up in this prison to learn that my contentment is not dependent on what i have or where I am, or who I'm with, or any of that. It's self-contained. It is an inside job, and yet there is the myth of the greener grass. But how many of us have learned this in life? Even though the grass on the other side of the fence looks greener, it still has to be mowed. It still has to be mowed. I mean, if, think about it. If you climb the fence and you're on that side, now you're looking at the grass you just left. And you're thinking, well, maybe, maybe that wasn't so bad. Maybe maybe where I was wasn't so bad. Well, no, it wasn't so bad. And, uh, but the myth of the greener grass. Another thing that can get us, and I've kind of referred to this already, would be the blessings of another person. Just pure old jealousy. Jealousy. I just, if I had what they had, uh, then, then I would be happy. And then something else I think that can really cause us to have trouble in contentment is the pursuit of the wrong thing. <laughs> the pursuit of the wrong dream. It's the story of a man who was climbing a ladder. He got to the top only to discover his ladder was leaning on the wrong wall. And he said, man, all that work, all that time, all that effort, I made it to the top. When I got to the top, I found out it wasn't what I thought it would be. It's the wrong wall that I was climbing. And how many people today, I wonder, are not content because they're looking for contentment in all the wrong places and they're climbing all the wrong walls. I read about Alexander the Great who conquered the known world of his day. And when he conquered the whole world of his day, he wept. Why? Because there were no more worlds to conquer. He conquered everything, but when he got it all, he wasn't satisfied. Why? Because all the things he was conquering don't have the ability to satisfy you and to give you contentment. And what he should have been doing is seeking God instead of conquering the world. He should have been seeking after God and seeking peace with God in a relationship with God. But even someone whose accomplishments were that great got what he was trying for and he wasn't happy. Somebody asked John D. Rockefeller, the wealthy man one time, they said, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money does it take to be satisfied? He said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. I read about somebody was sitting on the uh, Side of the street one day, he was crying and crying, and a man came up to console him said, why are you crying? He said, you haven't heard? John D. Rockefeller died today, and I'm very sad about that. He said, are you crying? Are you? I, I, I mean, I know you're crying. I, I didn't know that you would be that sad by that. Are you one of his heirs? He said, no, that's why I'm crying. I'm not one of his heirs. I'm not going to get what he's leaving behind. But think about this. Even if he had been one of his heirs, and even if he had inherited millions of dollars, Those millions of dollars couldn't have given him the contentment that Paul had in a Roman prison where he had absolutely no material possessions. All he had was the presence of Jesus Christ. And yet sometimes, this is what I was saying uh, earlier, when it comes to me, my relationship with God, my peace of mind, my peace in my heart, God has given me a, a deep, high level of commitment, I mean of contentment. 10, maybe some days 9, but right on up there. But sometimes I, like you, let these other things knock my contentment level down. And I have no one to blame but myself. Now, here's the question. How can we be content? You say, John, Paul said that he had learned in whatever state I am to be content. Uh, Adrian says here that it's self-contained. It's on the inside. So how can we, because I think all of us here tonight want to be content, I mean we want to get to that place where things don't I mean we're human things are always going to maybe rattle us or kind of I mean we're not going to ever stop being human but how can we get to a place where when that happens we recover and bounce back so quickly that we kind of shake it off and we we keep our contentment and we keep our satisfaction all that time. Let me just mention some things that I've jotted down tonight. Number 1 and this is where it all begins. In fact I don't even have to have a number two and three. I've written down three things, but I could just do it all in number one. Here's the secret to contentment. You ready for this? Say amen. Here's the secret to contentment. The presence of Jesus. That's it. I mean, if contentment is found in Jesus, what else do we need? Now, again, the difference between us and Paul If you're saved, you have the same Jesus living in you that Paul had living in him, and so do I. But the difference between us and Paul is that while many of us, in fact, all of us who are Christians, know Jesus as our Savior, Paul had learned to know Jesus as his everything. His everything. We talk about Jesus being our Savior, and he is, and our Lord and Master, and he is and our healer, and he is, and our protector, and our deliverer, and our friend, and he is. But whenever you get finished making that list of all the things Jesus is, get another piece of paper and make another list, because Jesus is everything. And so Paul's mindset, you know, so much of life is right up here in the mind. He's right in the mind. As a person thinks in his heart, so is he. It's how you look at it. I heard James Dobson say many years ago, something I never have forgotten. He said, there's a fine line between sanity and insanity. Sometimes I feel like I've crossed over. I don't know about you. Sometimes I feel like there was a fine line and I just, I went to the other side. I need to come back. But what he's saying is true. But I'll tell you something else. There's a fine line between contentment and discontentment. There's a fine line between joy and happiness and misery and unhappiness. There's a fine line. It's If you're here tonight and you're on the wrong side of that line, I'm here to tell you you're not as far away as you might think from coming into the promised land. There's a fine, there's a fine line between peace and no peace. You say, man, John, I'm here tonight with no peace. Well, that may be true, but there, you're, you're not far from peace. I mean, you are this close to it. If you'll change your mind which will change your heart and if you'll put your focus on the presence of Jesus Christ. And all through this letter, this is what Paul has been saying to us. He's writing a letter of encouragement from a prison. And he's saying, rejoice in the Lord always. As we saw last week in our sermon on anxiety, he made the statement. In fact, in verse number five, he says it. the last sentence in verse number five, the Lord is at hand. And that can mean His return is at hand. He could come back soon. But it also means the Lord is near. The Lord is right with me. And so Jesus, I, I think about peace. I'm not talking on peace. I'm talking about contentment. But I'll tell you this, you can't have contentment without peace. You can't have it. Now, you might can have peace without contentment, but you sure can't have contentment without peace. And the one thing that helped me cross the line, the only thing, from not very much peace to a cup that runs over with peace is just trusting Jesus. It's so simple. Just to say, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you. Talking about Adrian. He said in one of his sermons, if you're doubting Jesus, you can't be trusting Jesus. But if you're trusting Jesus, you can't be doubting Jesus. So just to trust him and just to focus on his presence with us, on his presence in our life. I was looking yesterday yesterday. At any sermons I might have preached in the past on contentment. I have one sermon on a Sunday night in 2009. That's how long it's been since I preached a sermon just on contentment. And I was going through the notes of that sermon last night, and I came across some things that I thought were pretty interesting. And one of the things that I came across last night, I was talking, and you know, we're talking about the presence of God, that God is with us, that God is here. And I came across something in the notes that I had completely forgotten about. As I've told you before, I don't talk about this much, but i told you before that in 2004 when I was doing a funeral for a founding member of Lakewood Church, I had the privilege of meeting Dodie Osteen. It was a happy day for me. And I said, I've always wanted to meet one of you. And here I am, meeting the prettiest of the whole family right here. And we hit it off, and we became friends. And I had written down in my notes something she told me in 2007 or 8 or 9 that I had forgotten she said it until I saw it in my notes last night. But here's what she said. I quoted her in 09. She said to me one night at a ballgame or somewhere, she said, John, as you know, I've been by that time she had been a widow for 10 years by 2009. And back then, she would go to the church most every day and and do work at the church. By the way, she just turned 90 this past Sunday, 90 years old. But she said to me on one occasion, she said, John, I have to be honest with you, as much as I love people, and she loves people, I mean, she loves people as much as anybody I've ever known. She said, but I have to be honest with you, all day long, I look forward to getting home in the evening and being alone with Jesus. Now you think about that. Those of you who live alone, and I live alone, but I wonder tonight, those of you who live alone, do you look forward to getting home in the evening and being alone with Jesus? And even those of you who don't live alone, do you look look forward to being alone with Jesus? I can remember one year on Christmas Eve, I invited her to come to our family. On this particular year, all of her family was going somewhere for Christmas, skiing or something. And I said, why don't you come to our house for Christmas Eve? And I invited her. And she said, I appreciate that, and I would love to come, and I know I would be welcome. But she said, I have to be honest with you. She said, I already have my evening, my Christmas Eve planned. And she said, I'm going to be home tonight alone with Jesus, and I'm going to be lighting candles in honor of his birthday. And I just remember what an impact that made on me. Here's a lady, been married 44 years, five kids, 19 grandchildren, huge family. And yet she and loves being with all of them, but she said, "In my heart, I have a desire every day to be alone with Jesus." Now, again, you don't have to live alone to be alone with Jesus. No, but I'm saying, in your car, when you get in your car, do you look? Do you look at that? Do you look at that commute, that travel time to work, instead of just saying, "Man, I've got to make a 30-minute commute." Don't look at it as a commute. Look at it as 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 a chapel. Look at your car as a chapel. This is time to be with Jesus. That doesn't mean you have to pray uh, the whole time, but just to be in meditation, just to be in thought. I talked to a man this morning, this afternoon, and he said, one of our staff members, actually, Kerry Eves, he was up here playing an instrument a minute ago, and he told me something about him I didn't know. He said he wakes up every morning at 4.30. And I said, I do too, and I go back to sleep about 4.45, but he meant he gets up at 4.30. And he said every morning... Unless it's raining, I go on an eight-mile walk. Eight miles. I said, now you tell me about that. How do you? He said, well, I move on at a pretty good pace. I said, do you have your quiet, do you do your praying while you're walking? Eight miles. He said, it takes about two hours to walk. He said, I do pray while I walk, but it's more meditative, more, you know, I'm, I'm, but it's not like structured praying. He said, I get back home at 630, and that's when I have my quiet time. But he he made a distinction that I've always thought is important. He has a time in his day not just to read his bible and pray like we're supposed to have our quiet time. But he has a time in his day where as I would say it, he just kind of lets he just kind of airs his mind out with Jesus. Meditation. I've had God tell me more things impress more things on my heart not necessarily during a quiet time. I've had that too. But I mean just when you're out there doing something like that where you, you're not telling God or even asking God for things. You just, as Charles Stanley used to say, your mind is in neutral. And when your mind's in neutral, now you can hear from God. But if your mind's never in neutral, I mentioned Adrian here. When Adrian was in, in his, I don't know, he was on up and been pastoring for a long time. A man in his church came to him who had been the high-ranking uh, CEO or something for, I don't remember if it was Procter & Gamble or Johnson & Johnson. It wasn't either one of them, but it was something like that. And he retired. And he came to, doctor, to the pastor. He said, Pastor, you've got a lot of responsibilities. Preaching all these sermons, leading and pastoring a church, you know, everything that goes along with it. He said, I just want to volunteer my services to you to take as much of that the administrative responsibilities off your plate as I can so that... You can have time to think. And the pastor said it's one of the greatest things ever happened in his life. He had time to think. And I'm wondering in your day and in your schedule, do you have time built in just to think? Not just to read your Bible and pray, but just to think. Do you ever just say to, to Jesus, Lord, if you have anything to say to me, I'm listening. See, when, when we talk about turning your commute into your chapel, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should spend that time going through your prayer list. You can, but it might be better some days, or at least on your way home, sometimes turn the radio off and just say, now, God, for the next 10 minutes of this ride, then I'll turn the radio back on. But for the next 10 minutes of this ride, is there anything that you have to say to me? Do you ever just ask Jesus, what are you thinking tonight? I mean, those of you who are married, I know know that married people do that. You're sitting around tonight, and you go home after the service, and have dinner, and turn the TV on, and you look over at your spouse, and Maybe she or he, they're quieter than normal, and you just naturally would say to them, well, now, what are you thinking about? Well, I'm kind of, this is what happened today, and it's, but it's a natural question. What are you thinking about? Well, do you, have you ever asked Jesus that? And the Lord, tonight, here we are on a Wednesday night. I know it's not night in heaven. It's never night up there, but it's night down here, and you're with me down here. What are you thinking? Well, I'm not saying he's always going to answer that, but I'm not, but I can tell you sometimes he will. It is the presence of Jesus. I think this sometimes. (laughs) And I said this to the Lord the other day. I said, Lord, if it weren't for you, I was home when I said this. I said, I'd be in this house all by myself. I would. But I'm not, because he is there. And so it is the presence of Jesus, and he has to become real to us. And I do think when Paul said, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content, I think Paul was saying, when I first was saved in Damascus, man, I I knew Jesus as my Savior and the the one who forgave my sins and was taking me to heaven. But as the years have come and gone, I have learned that he is more than just that. He is my everything. He's my everything. I, I told the Tuesday Bible Lunch yesterday I got home from work on Monday evening, and I had two things to do. I had to outline my sermon for Sunday morning, and I had to prepare my Tuesday noon day for yesterday because my dad was away, and, uh, and I had to do that yesterday. And so when I got home Monday night, I, I, I knew I wasn't going to be watching. I didn't watch the ball game, which as it turned out, I'm glad that I didn't watch the ball game. But that's not why I didn't watch it. I didn't watch it for other reasons. But I, you know what? I wasn't in there. Saying, "Oh, I sure wish I was watching the game." You know, I, I was interested. I had my phone. I was keeping up with the score, but I can honestly tell you this: I, I can't say I was happy. I was as happy doing what I was doing on Monday night than however many thousand people were down there at Minute Maid. And even if the Astros would have won, I was just as that happy because it's so. It's the presence of Jesus in our lives, and he just has to be real, and this is why the devil comes along and does anything and everything he can to get our focus off of Jesus. He'll make us worry. That's where he would strike me at. In my sermon last week on anxiety, I told you about that. Those are the type of things the devil would put in my mind, or he'll accuse me or condemn me or make me feel badly about something. As I said last week, sometimes the devil can make you feel guilty when you didn't do anything wrong, and uh, sometimes we feel guilty because we did do something wrong. But sometimes he, but he gets in our mind, puts thoughts in our mind. And all of a sudden now, instead of focusing on the fact that Jesus is in the living room with me, not to mention in my heart, but, I mean, just in the room with me, well, now we're thinking about this and thinking about that, or maybe something happened at work, or, you know, now I'm upset about this or upset about that, or something's happening in Washington. Goodness gracious, that would upset all of us if we just filled our minds with all these things that are happening. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be knowledgeable or keep up with the world events. I keep up with it. I'm interested in all that. But I know this. I can only push that envelope so far. And if I get put put too much of that in my mind, it gets my focus off Jesus. And I, I believe this with all my heart. Anything that diminishes our awareness of the presence of Jesus Christ is not good for us. Not good for us. I can remember back in the, this is personal, I hope my dad won't mind me saying it, but uh, I can assure you if he does, I'll hear about it in a few minutes when this service is over. (laughs) But in the late 1980s, our family used to go to the Southern Baptist Convention every year. And uh, we didn't have a lot of money. Joel and I never knew it. We kind of grew up poor. We didn't know that, but we did. My dad made $12,000 a year in the church he pastored in Tennessee. But we were always happy. We always had a good time. But our big trip every year, we would go to the Southern Baptist Convention. And, uh, you know, I liked it because we were going somewhere as a family. I liked it because I liked preaching. I liked preaching as a kid. I mean, I just liked the preaching. And I'd just go listen to those guys preach. and, And I liked that. But as the years went by and denominationally political lines were drawn... And you had friends, my dad did, on both sides, and, you know, we're one of those families denominationally and um, nationally, any, th- any kind of political thing, extremely conservative, very conservative, as you would expect. But I think the thing that is a little bit different, like, we're not looking to fight anybody about that. In other words, like, we believe what we believe. We believe the Bible. We're conservative. But we're not, like, combative. Well, the Southern Baptist... You know, it got combative within the deal, and, and, and some, you know, changes needed to be made. I get it all, but it just got so combative that, that one year, at, we were coming home from, the, from wherever it was that year, and my mother said to my father, Charles, I don't think we should ever go to the Southern Baptist Convention again because you have friends on both sides of this thing, and it is so upsetting for you to be in a setting that used to be preaching, 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 and now they're still preaching, but it has become so, so divisive. You say, give me an example. Okay. In 1985, my dad and I went to St. Louis, Missouri for the Southern Baptist Convention. I just, 1985 or 86, and my dad was nominating Richard Jackson to be the president of the SBC. Richard pastored North Phoenix Baptist Church for many years. He had pastored in Sulphur Springs, where we came from. They were like they're like brothers, and he nominated him to be the president of the SBC. Well, on the other side was Adrian Rogers running. Now, who do I quote as much as anybody? It's Adrian. You know we love Adrian. Dad and Adrian are very close, very good friends. When Adrian Rogers was dying, when he was battling cancer and coming from Memphis to Houston to enter for treatments. My dad calls him and says, hey, when you're in Houston, I want you to use my car when you're here. Well, he didn't need it, but he appreciated the offer. But, I mean, that was a, but he was nominating Richard, not as a statement against Adrian. He was nominating Richard because he knew that there were some on this extreme that were trying to take the denomination in such a, a divisive way that he didn't think it was healthy for the denomination. And so Adrian knew why he was doing that. There was no hard feelings. So about two or three weeks before the convention, my mother, we're, we're at, in Oklahoma at a youth camp, and the phone rings one night, and my mother answers the phone. And somebody on the other line said, "Miss Redmond, yes. You, Dr. Charles, yes. Yes, I'm his wife. He's planning on nominating Richard Jackson at the Southern Baptist Convention in St. Louis next week. Yes, he is. You tell him... If he continues with that plan, that we have eyes on him, and he will not make it from his hotel to the convention center. See, it was that element that was leading him to nominate Richard, not Adrian. Adrian had nothing to do. So Adrian found out about that. He called my dad, Charles. I got word of this phone call that you received. I'm embarrassed. I'm sorry. I can't believe anybody would do this. I want you to know this cuz Adrian was already the president. He said I will be providing security for you to go from the hotel to the convention center to nominate my opponent cuz he was friends with they were all friends. But I'm saying that's the that's the thing that it was, you were dealing with, and that's why she finally said to him, "We can't keep going to this party because it's just it's just it's not good for you. It's not healthy for you. So I'm I'm giving you the story in a preacher's life how something like that that how could that not get your focus off of the Lord? Now you're wondering, am I even safe to leave my hotel room at a Southern Baptist convention? So what I'm saying is, you, put, you make up your own illustrations or apply your own to your life. Anything the devil can do to get your focus off of Jesus, he doesn't care what it is. Listen, the devil doesn't care what you're focusing on as long as you're not focusing on Jesus. He doesn't care what it is. Focus on uh, the political candidate you can't stand. Focus on an issue that rubs you the wrong way the most. Well... Hey, look, I'm not saying that we don't all feel those things. I'm saying this. We have to make a fundamental decision in life. Are we going to keep our focus on Jesus? or Are we going to focus on something else? And so that's why I'm saying, I, Paul said, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I wish, I, could, I wish Paul were here tonight and I could say to Paul, Paul, when did you learn that? When? When did you learn that? Paul might say, well, John, I learned it after being in this Roman jail for about three and a half months. Because after about three and a half months of being locked up in this cell, I figured the only thing I have now is Jesus. And either he's enough or he isn't enough. And so I just put my full focus on him. And I found him not only to be enough, I found him to be more than enough. So, how can we be content? The presence of Jesus. I wrote down two other things But I think that point was so good, you don't even need them. But if you want them, say say please. Say please, I'll give them to you. Well, the next one is, I'm not going to elaborate this. I certainly elaborated point number one. But I I will not elaborate point numbers two or three. Number two, the approval of Jesus. The approval of Jesus. Adrian used to say, I'm just quoting him all over the place tonight. Adrian said, if you please Jesus, it doesn't matter who you displease but if you displease jesus it doesn't matter who you please so if you say hey you know what if i seek to please everybody i'm probably going to lose my peace and lose my contentment because i can't you can't please everybody you can't please everybody because everybody doesn't even have the same opinion so you'd have to become schizophrenic to, you'd have to just change your you'd have to always be changing to please you wouldn't even be true to yourself but you just can say, you know what? I want to please people. I, I don't want people to be unhappy with me. I want people to be happy with me. But if I, if I try to do that, I, man, I'm going to lose it all. But if I'll just say, Lord, I want to please you. So just the approval of God, the approval of Jesus, to know that if you're seeking after him and trying to live right and trusting in Jesus, he's pleased with you. And then to remember this, number three, contentment is possible. Maybe tonight when I ask you at the beginning, On a scale from 1 to 10, how content are you? And you said, man, 4 or 5. Maybe somebody said 2 or 3. Man, some said, I would be embarrassed to tell my number. Well, that's okay. Because contentment is possible. And that's what Paul meant when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that includes be content with whatever our circumstances in life may be. And so... To close this up tonight and to wrap it up, Paul said, I have learned this. And so here's the challenge for all of us tonight. We go from here to our homes, whatever you're going to do the rest of this night. I haven't even had all my quiet time today, so that's part of my night ahead of me. And then part of it's whatever else. But whatever you're going to do the rest of this night, just say something like this to God. Say, God, tonight in whatever I'm doing and tomorrow, whatever I'm doing, Help me to learn to be content in this environment. And if we could learn that, i tell you what, we would be happy, grateful, joyful people, and to know that our contentment is in Jesus, and wherever we are, if we'll keep our focus on Him, just like we can always have peace, we can always be content. Amen? This has been good tonight, hasn't it? This has been good. Father, I thank you that your word is so applicable I Thank you for old Paul, Lord, and I wish tonight that you would just tell him here in the next little bit how a group of people down in Texas, a place that didn't even exist when he wrote this, and here we are almost 2,000 years after he wrote it, and we're being blessed because of what he learned in a Roman prison and how he kept his faith in you, and his focus on you. And he was honest enough to say, I've learned to be content. By implication, he was saying, I haven't always been this way, by the way. Had you known me before I got saved, or even had you known me, Paul would say, shortly after I got saved. I couldn't have said what I'm saying now. But now I've been through some things. There have been times when the tables have turned against me, and, and when the bottom has fallen out but when the bottom fell out I really discovered it didn't make any difference because underneath the bottom was a rock and that rock is Jesus and he was strong enough to hold me up God help us in our lives and during our challenging times to find in you what Paul found in you and that is our everything where we're thankful for the people in our lives we're thankful for the blessings in our lives and the things that we have but God where we're not dependent on any of those things for our contentment be gentle with us but bring us to that place is our prayer in Jesus name and all the people said now with our heads bowed and eyes closed if you would say, John, tonight I don't know that I'm saved. You're preaching on a different stratosphere tonight. Paul's writing on a different stratosphere than where I live. Well, that's okay. We have to begin somewhere. And we begin by confessing our sins to God. Asking for His forgiveness. And for His grace. And for His salvation. We're seeing people do that In virtually every service every week, would you just pray this prayer right now? Lord Jesus, come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me, and I trust you to do it. I trust you, Jesus. I trust you.